Hey everyone, my name's Brayden, and you're listening to A Questioning Faith, a podcast crafted to allow us all to ask hard questions about what we believe and how our beliefs shape us. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. Remember to like and subscribe to all of our social media channels. The links will be in the show notes. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to the seventh episode of A Questioning Faith. And I know this is going to be a phenomenal episode because it's the seventh episode, which in Hebrew means an episode of completion. It is one of the most important numbers, a number of joy. So today will truly be, I'm not just guessing, I know it's going to be an awesome, joyful, wonderful conversation. And we're glad that you have all joined us for this podcast. A questioning faith will be exploring one of the great questions of faith. What is the Bible? And how could it possibly have anything to do with me, this ancient book of stories? How could it possibly mean anything to my life today? So as a way to begin, I'm going to tell a lame old pastor joke. And someday maybe you'll hear this in a congregation and know that it didn't come from me. (laughs) It's been out there for a long time. There's a pastor who, at the end of the worship service, had the tradition of walking to the back of the sanctuary and greeting and shaking hands as the people left. And an elderly lady stopped him, and she had a terrible scowl on her face, eyes, slits, perspiring, spit dripping out of the corner of her mouth. She was angry. And the pastor just knew she was going to unload on him. And he wondered what it could possibly be this time. You didn't use God's version of the Bible. The one true version. You're trying to teach us out of heresy. The Bible that created by the devil. And he said, I'm just using the New Revised Standard Version. Lots of churches use this. Oh, no, 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 no. It's not the one true Bible. And he, and he thought, what's she going to say, the King James? And he, and, and he said, well, I like the King James Version, too. That's not the one true Bible, either. It's the one that came through the flood. <laughs> and that's my lame joke. Mm. It's pretty lame. <laughs> mm. Maybe just tell that once. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, John's got a tissue, and he's laughing. So oh. maybe it's your, you know. But I think we've, as pastors, pastors think that's funny because we get lots of grief from people who have their own version of the Bible, and that's the only version of the Bible that they'll use or they'll read. Yeah. I've gone to school with students that are worried about how to keep their jobs because this the church that they work at says the King James is the only version that's the legitimate version the only English version of the Bible that can be read. And so today, we're talking about this book that still is the number one most printed book in the world, and I think always has been. And yet, there are all these different definitions, and I would say the majority of people probably don't even have a definition or even really think about what the Bible is. So we're, we're going to explore this today, and I know John is going to love this because I was in Israel in 2014, and I was at Qumran, where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, and there's a very iconic picture of this cave. It's a cave that you had to really want to get to. It was in the side of a rock wall. And you almost had to be a mountain goat to get down the, the very narrow ledge to this cave. And if you search for the Dead Sea Scrolls on the internet, now you're going to see that picture of the cave. So I took the picture and sent it to John and said, ah, guess where I am? And John texted me back, which was really cool. I'm in Israel texting 
John and he's texting me back half a world away. And he said, oh, that's my image of heaven to sit in that cave and translate for eternity. <laughs> so <laughs> that paints a little bit of a picture of John. He is a linguist. I don't know how many languages he's fluent in. I think he says so at the beginning of this book. But the Bible for John is not really an English book. So, John, would you begin in, in that perspective and tell us what the Bible is for you? To the horrors of most of our Christian listeners, I think, I would throw away every single translation, probably even including the Vulgate, because reading Hebrew and Greek, one really becomes aware of how much interpretation is involved in making a translation. It's very difficult to capture nuance. It's very, very difficult to find correct vocabulary. And the Hebrew is perhaps a lot more difficult um, than the Greek because context determines the meaning of a word tremendously. And lacking that knowledge about what context was intended, we often mistranslate. Uh, the Masoretic text is probably very reliable, but interestingly enough, it was not the version of the Hebrew text, or I'm, I'm sorry, it was not the version of the Old Testament that Jesus and the apostles quoted most. They quoted 90% of the time the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew text, and the other 10% of the time they quoted the Aramaic. So the Masoretic text that is used in most Bible translations today is quite accurate. The Hebrew text, that one is still somewhat up for grabs and the Bible study is too recent a uh, study as it were as far as the New Testament goes, we have a long way to go before we'll ever land on what's called the autograph. So at every point when I've been working with any given Bible, and I have at least 24 different translation, translations sitting on my shelves right now, I've wanted to throw every single one of them out the window at one point or another. But um, I, I love the Bible. I read them all. I try to find the wisdom in all of them. I read Luther's translation. Luther was a brilliant man. I read Jerome's translation. Jerome was a very brilliant man. And uh, the King James Bible is uh, incomparable as far as poetry. It's just, just awesome poetry. So. so you said a number of things in there that many people are going to need some help translating. Masoretic texts. Masoretic text is the, uh, let's say, approved Hebrew version of the Bible. And there are probably at least three, if not four, Hebrew versions of the Old Testament out there. And we do have substantial parts of all of them, if not all of them. The Masoretic text accounts for most of the finds at Qumran. The care with which that text was copied is phenomenal, such that it can be counted on to be a very reliable translation. So it's so, just, simply, just simply the most reliable Hebrew text. So when you say that, the, the, the way that we know that it's reliable, the Masoretic text 1200 AD approximately, is that correct? Well, the, let's say the um, defined version. You see in Judaism, when a scroll outlived its usefulness, it was uh, done away with as it were. So the most ancient surviving copies would be 
the Leningrad Codex, for example, mm -hmm. that you and I saw at that exhibit together. Mm -hmm. uh, but the Qumran scrolls with, I believe every single book of the Old Testament, except for Esther, you know, we know that the Masoretic text was what was used primarily at Qumran. Okay. So that the discoveries in 1948 pushed that back a millennium or more. Okay, you talk about an autograph. What's an autograph? It's the uh, supposed original version written by, let us just take, for example, a letter from Paul. And Paul's letters are among the oldest texts of the New Testament. One would hope that at some point we would actually have a Greek letter of Paul in our hands that was actually written by his scribe and signed by him. We do not have that, but that is the objective of textual criticism. The, okay, so textual criticism, <laughs> we need you to define that for us too. Mm -hmm. So let's take, let's just take the New Testament. There are primarily two major groups in Germany who determine what text of the Bible is the real text. And they have very, very clear definitions of how to determine when a particular sentence or a particular word belongs where it is. The, perhaps the uh, more generous Bible group has found something like 5,000 different variant readings in the New Testament. And, you know, everyone just gasps and uh, you know, clutches their heart because this is a horrifying thought. But the reality is that amounts to maybe one or two words per page of a Greek Bible. And the 50% of those are when a noun has been given in a plural in one version and in a singular in the other version. So oftentimes it's just a different tense of the verb or a different number. The actual number of Bible readings that are really critical for determining the text are fewer than maybe a couple hundred. Most of them are quite minor. Some of them are hugely major. So textual criticism is trying to understand the meaning based on the history of the text itself or the translation. Is that a fair I'll just I'll just give one of the more not notorious examples, and that is when the father comes to ask his two sons to go work in the vineyard. And is it the elder son who says yes and the younger son who says no, but then the elder son doesn't go when the younger son does go or whatever. There are actually four permutations on that. They are equally represented. We don't know which was the original, but there are certain methods by which they are trying to determine what is the probable reading that was given, or let us say the reading that most accurately reflected what Jesus said in that parable. So these groups are trying to create a Greek New Testament that is compiling all of the fragments that we've discovered because that's what we have, you know, the, the oldest trying to say, uh, the, the oldest complete, I don't know, do we have any complete copies of any of the New Testament books? The, um, there are a few pages from the second century. The oldest fragments survive from the first century. Very, very few of those. We have a couple pages from the second century. It's really not until the third century when we start seeing, but complete books, um, probably we're talking fourth or fifth century. So well on down the road. So these textual critics are trying to 
look at the oldest pieces of fragments they can find and how they line up with the third and fourth and fifth century books and try to determine what the oldest or the, what most accurately represents the oldest books that we can find or oldest pieces of scrolls that we can find. And so they've compiled a, a Greek New Testament that is then used by the majority of English Bible translators. Or I guess any if, any, if you're German or Spanish or whatever, but any English Bible that we read is based upon this compilation that has become the standard Greek text. The Nestle Allen is the one that I'm familiar with. Is that? That's, that's one. The other one is called USB or UBS, United Bible Society. Okay. Uh, and actually, you're right. The United Bible Society is the one that my seminary used. Uh, so, so that gives a physical history or a physical definition of what the Bible is or, or how we get to where we're at today. But I'm glad, John, you brought up the perspective that every single one of your translations is from someone's point of view. The English translation, it doesn't literally carry the nuances and the meanings of even the, the Greek compilation that we have. So to say that the Bible is inerrant, it, it, well, I mean, it's just, it's just a nonsense statement because every English translation is different. Which Bible are you talking about is inerrant? And then people will say, oh, we, if we had the original autographs, then we have an inerrant, but we don't. We don't have the original autographs. So what do we do with this Bible? And one of the challenges that this conversation brings up is if we are not careful as leaders, Christian leaders, we can drive people away from the faith. Oh, then the Bible's meaningless. It doesn't mean anything. Well, that's not true. And that's where this conversation goes now. So given all of the challenges in saying that this is the one true Bible, because we can't, Braden and Liz, what does the Bible mean to you? And how maybe begin with what is the definition of the Bible for you? And then what does it mean to you? You want to go first? You want me to go first? You can go. Okay. Um, John, John used this word, but he kind of bounced off of it. And I'm going to dive into it because it's kind of been the way that I've been able to understand it the most lately. Um, John used the word that it referred to it as a book of poetry. And there have been so many parts of my life where I have viewed scripture or been told to view scripture or been taught to view scripture as, as being very similar to Moses with the Ten Commandments. It's chiseled in stone, never going to change. This is what it says. Take it or leave it. But over the last few years, I've started to see it more as this piece of art and poetry and like that gem that we've referred to. And the more that you sit down and, and zoom in and then zoom out and play with it and, and allow yourself to, to explore and allow yourself to let it take you different places. Um, because it's a piece of art and because I view it as a piece of art and poetry and it still reveals a lot of true things. Um, and so I guess if I were going to say, what is the Bible to me today? It's a book of truths. And the, the, as I'm listening to John talk about uh, finding the autograph and, and things like that, there's parts of me that go, that is historically, fascinating work and I'm really glad that there are people in this world who are doing that kind of thing 
I'm not one of those people. I, to me, as if no disrespect meant to you, John, but as you, as you're talking about this, I kind of go, does that matter? And, and that is all based on my, my definition of what this, what the Bible is for me. Does it need for me right now? I don't need the Bible, the physical book of the Bible to be proven or not proven because I feel like I am, I see it more as these are stories of what people have found to be true and the the most true things have been the things that have been passed along and passed along and passed along and so it's it's almost like a historical filter on truth that's that's a real that's really good Braden. i like that. <laughs> i like that Liz, how about you so i'll just do a go back as a child we you know we got a bible I don't know, I think I got one every year after third grade or something like that. And they would just kick it with the other Bibles that I'd gotten, the different versions. And to me, the Bible was, <clears throat> we used it for Bible battles. Um, so it was a tool. And, and we don't beat each other with these Bibles. For those of you that are listening that maybe haven't heard of a Bible battle, but uh, you're on teams and the question is read and who did this and the Red Sea, blah, 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 pretty intricate or what book was this from? And, you know, we, we, if we knew it, we said, we set out the answer. And if we didn't, we had a reference and we had to search it in the Bible and find it, you know, but there were different, you know, different translations. Um, so the Bible was a, the Bible was a tool that kind of just stayed immature on my bookshelf. And I guarantee that my dad still has those Bibles on our bookshelf at our house. <laughs> what are you going to say? It kind of sounds like you were, I did this a lot when I was younger and don't do it so much. Were you, did you ever, you do the thing where you go, this is my problem. Blah, and then you let the, the, the two covers just flop open. And then you try to search those two pages that open up and go, what do you want me to see God? No, you never I did never that. Did I did that. that. I did I that a couple of times, and I'll, I'll be perfectly honest. That never worked. But yeah, I think I went to my dad if that's, I had issues. Oh, that's a not my heavenly father, but my earthly father. Well, so it's kind of what your Bible battles made me think of too. That's okay. But today, um, I'm well. I am totally rediscovering the Bible. I wrote a couple things down because when we do these podcasts, my brain is like pew, 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 like a pinball. So writing things down helps me to stay with what I want to say. But um, I, the Bible now is a tool that has, I think, uh, grown and evolved to this connection to God. So I use the Bible and with a great support ministry team like Braden and John and and Eric, like, I understand so much more because I'm taking the time to find uh, the true one Bible, the true one meaning, but um, the meaning of love in it. Mm -hmm. There's good in, in, in those stories when we search for it. Um, and the other way that I'm using it is to translate it into a way that children can understand, not the way that maybe their parents like me grew up listening to it and got like nothing out of it. it for me um but getting more out of it with translating it in a way that that they can understand and maybe isn't so wrapped around the traditional stories of death and you know stuff like that yeah john would how would you like to respond i see your wheels are turning i i just love these guys i'm so glad they're part of our team because eric and i have been doing this together for well over a decade and so we already you know we're kind of used to each other but i really love having you guys on board because i love this statement it's fascinating work don't want to do it but it's fascinating work <laughs> you know um i also love uh, this statement about uh the beauty of the writing speaking to you Braden. 
um, you know, as I was writing the book, I gained an insight into so many texts of the Bible that I did not expect. And in the chapters 27, 28, and 29, I had to distill years and years and years of inspired, inspired data coming in into a little bit of words that might be intelligible to other people. It was <laughs> terribly challenging. And then I look at Daniel and it's like, this guy just threw his hands up in the air. And I look at Ezekiel and it's like, this guy was considered crazy on top of having to throw his hands up in the air that no one was understanding him. There's a lot of artifice that is required to communicate those things. So the Bible was very carefully crafted. And the Old Testament is all poetry in Hebrew. It's almost entirely. In, in the synagogue, the Old Testament is sung. It's not read. But traditionally, of course, in the Latin church, the readings were sung and not read. So we have lost a lot in the English translation because there is art and beauty intended because I loved what you said too, Liz, about Bible battles. That sounds fun to me. It doesn't sound necessarily easy because having to look it up in a concordance is almost impossible anyway, let yeah, alone me, you know, if you're trying to compete with somebody, okay? But I love that because the Bible was actually somewhat fun or in some way fun for you. Um, and that's something that I think that certainly has been lost at the last church I was attending because it was like, you go in there and it is not fun. Mm -hmm. it, it used to be beautiful and it used to be joyous and it used to be fun. And those are important things, I think. I loved what you guys said. Thanks, John. Thank you. No, thank you. What, what is the Bible? What is the Bible for me and why is it important? Over the years, that definition has changed. I am certain in 10 years, I'll have a different one. But what I is hope I do. <laughs> That's right. That's absolutely. Because that means we're growing and God is teaching us. And the Holy Spirit's continuing to guide us and open our minds to new perspectives. But I think the most important question Christians should be asking themselves if they want to grow. Well, number one, it's if we want to grow, we have to curious. And I'm curious about the Bible. And I'm hoping to help inspire other people to become curious about the Bible. What is it? What does it mean? How can it do something in my life? And what I've come to see is it is a library that was written over the course of at least 1200 years. Because, and I say that because the oldest texts of Torah, the Miriam's song, was at least, scholars believe it was written at least uh, the year 1250 BC. So Paul wrote around the year 50, the, the book of Galatians, the earliest text we have in the New Testament, probably around the year 50. So at least 1250, 1300 years of writings have been compiled in this library. So it's a library that teaches its students what it means to be human, what is the nature of God, and what does it mean to be in relationship with God? What does it mean to be a human being in relationship with God? And I talked about congregations being taught by their pastors that the Bible is inerrant and that it is the literal truth. Well, which version? Which version is the literal truth? And the, this is a library that contradicts itself time and time again. But it, because it was never intended to be a literal proof that God gave a golden pen to somebody and they wrote, wrote it down. And this is the way it came out. There's at least 26, 27 individual hands that wrote the first five books of the Bible. And we have no idea how many editors played a role in that as well. The scholars believe that perhaps Ezra 
may have been the final redactor, the final editor. Or if it wasn't Ezra, it was somebody who lived right next door to Ezra, about that time frame around the year 500 BC, coming back from the, the Babylonian exile. But the Bible wasn't intended to answer what is the one literal truth. It was intended to, to relay the experiences that people had with God. Ezekiel had an experience of God. David had an experience of God, and they're trying to share these experiences. Paul had these incredible mystical experiences with God. In the book of 2 Corinthians, he says, I was taken up, I think it's the fourth heaven. Uh, I was taken up to the, the fourth level of heaven and saw things I can't even put into words. So like John said, Ezekiel's trying to put this divine download into some kind of meaningful this piece of work piece of art that's why the prophets write so much in poetry because it's art how do i try to define what god just showed me so that's where i do believe that all of the texts are inspired because people had encounters with god and those encounters with god inspired them to write and maybe some of them wrote exactly what they heard God saying. It certainly can't rule that out. But at the same time, it also defines what it means to be human in a really powerful way. Who told you you were naked? We've talked about this before. Oh, we all are terrified of being naked and exposed. That story, like Braden, you were talking about truths. Mm -hmm. Plural truths. We are terrified of being naked and exposed. Jacob wrestling with God and walking away with a limp. Wow, we all wrestle with God. Oh, I can't remember which psalm it is. Maybe I'm, I would just be guessing. But in Babylon, the Israelites are sitting by the river, they gather by the river. And their captors are telling them, sing the songs of Israel. How can we sing the songs of Israel when we are in a foreign land? When we are prisoners, how can we sing the songs that used to bring us so much joy? And that psalm ends with, oh, if we could just bash our captors' babies' heads on the rocks. <laughs> I've felt that way. We've all felt that way, right? It's human. Oh, if I could just bash my enemy's head on a rock. Now, we're not, not going to literally do that, but that lament, the laments are... So John and I were talking about the, the stages of grief before, and far too many Christians, Christian pastors or Christian communities tell their congregations, there's no reason to grieve. Your loved one's with Christ. Your loved one's in heaven. You should be happy for them. B.S. <laughs> B.S. Yeah. The majority of the yeah. Bible is lament. The two-thirds of the Psalms are lament. What it means to be human is to figure out how we can make our way through the grief of being human. Uh, so, before this turns into a sermon, I'll stop because this isn't the Earth <laughs> show. <laughs> I thought you were doing really good. Yeah. So, John, what about the nature of God, or what about being human has the Bible taught you, or what does the Bible teach you? Why is it important to you? When I first picked up the Bible, I needed some kind of clarification about how to be in this earth because I had managed not to learn that. What it has become since then is a lot of things. And every single day I read the Bible and it's always fresh and new. So 
it has become almost like a therapeutic practice in that as I read it, I'm actually being transformed. So it has become just a major healing technology, if you will. And my intellect has been transformed. I, I'm not as adept at memorization as some of the young boys at their bar mitzvahs who are required to be able to at least go into how many ever chapters of the Bible they actually memorize. Um, but my intellect is very definitely improved. So it's, it's a transformative tool for me. Liz, you started to talk a little bit about transformation it, from the perspective of children, helping to shape children. Mm -hmm. Would you say that the Bible has been transformative in a way for you as well? Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> and giving me the opportunity to really spend time with the Bible as well, um, having an obligation, not an obligation, but having an opportunity to, to teach little ones um, and, and to hear the message that, uh, that we serve a loving God, mm -hmm. not, a, not a punishing, and if you don't do this or you don't know that, you're not worthy, you know? Um, but in in say crafting all my kids my kid connection videos, um, I'm I'm learning as I'm making these videos, um, and 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 searching and finding new things. Like John said, he's you know it's it's uh, find something new, and I'm feeling that with the kids ministry and um, yeah. <laughs> Which is just amazing because, like, I know that these are not new stories to you. No, well, and that but the fact that, like, if I needed any kind of confirmation that that this was working or that this was meaningful work, besides just to myself, um, to watch and hear other stories of kids, you know, saying the same the same little message that I was trying to say, you know, that God is everywhere and my words help and hurt people and to hear my four-year-old daughter sing about that and um when she sees someone sad to say god loves you and jesus loves you too and you know just uh i feel that i've been transformed through the children's ministry nice. i have been transformed and 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 this is even going back to um, you know, being a, a camp counselor in high school and college, and then doing children's ministry in Grand Island, and then again, having the opportunity here, I am, I am most closest with God, and mm. um, yeah, and, and rediscovering the Bible when I'm working with kids. I just thought of another thing. On my best days, I think the Bible is 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 my filter. It's the the way it's the lens that I see the world through. Um, on my best days. And part of what made me think of think of saying it that way is that Liz mentioned that, you know, it's through these through children's ministry, through our experiences at church camps, through these these times in our life when we've intentionally not let our pocket Bible stay in our pocket. It's the intentional Christian community places, the times when we're actually sitting down to have these kinds of conversations, even though like all four of us will readily admit that none of us feel like we're coming to the table with answers. We're coming with observations, mm -hmm. things that we've noticed. We're coming to the table and bringing something here, but, it, but I don't think any of us would be arrogant enough to say that we're coming here to say this is how it is and this is what it is and and but when we've experienced that thing 
most powerfully. I, I, I think this is true for you. I know it's true for me. It's been because I've been putting myself in a place where we are talking about things from a scriptural perspective, things from a perspective that reminds us that there's been a lot that has happened on this rock that's floating through space. And there will continue to be a lot that happens on this rock that floats through space. And so my existence, I'm beginning to notice, is, is what I make of it. And it's, it's that idea of what you look for, you will find. If I want to look for all the sin in the world, all the devil in the world, we've talked about this before, I'm going to find it all. But it certainly is going to look a lot like I'm worshiping that sin or that devil because that's all I'm going to spend my time talking about. Or I can flip that gem around and say, God told me everything's good. God told me I'm good. God told me that even on the days that, that I just want to throw my hands up and say, screw all this. I still get to keep going. The, I, I heard it on a podcast I was listening to this morning that faith is that, that, that piece of me that, that un, I forget exactly how we said it, but um, faith, faith is that piece of me that, that says, even when Braden doesn't believe in all this bull, it doesn't, that doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter if I, in that moment, believe it or not, or feel it or not. It just is. It's just there. And I don't, I, like, I couldn't say that out loud and feel like I made any sense without having the scriptural language and metaphor and everything, all of, all of that that's packaged into that library of books that we've been studying. I couldn't say that about faith and about myself that even those times that I go, it doesn't matter, none of it's real. I get to say that out loud and feel that deep in my deep parts of me. And it doesn't matter because that's because, because it is, it just is. And that's the thing. Like we all just get to be here, whether, I don't know, there's the, the cynical side, maybe would say whether we want to be or not, <laughs> but it's the Eric Meyer version would say it's all gift. It is all gift, and the Bible helps us to see that it's all gift, even when things get really dark, because there's not a character in the Bible that didn't have to persevere through some really dark, challenging times, and we get these story after story after story that shows just what it means to be human, and that God loves us, even though we continue to screw up. So Abraham is told to go. He's called out of Chaldea, goes to Ur. He's called out of the land of Ur in Chaldea, and he goes up into Turkey with his dad. His dad dies there, and then God says he calls him, uh, calls him to uh, go to the land of Canaan. And God goes, and God considers him righteous and right relationship because he goes. And you know what the first thing he does when he gets to where he thinks he's supposed to go? He lies about his wife being his sister because he's afraid that the king might kill him and take his wife as a bride. So he lies about it and allows his wife to be taken by the king so he doesn't get killed. Is that a righteous guy? <laughs> he's a screw up like I am. <laughs> he screws up even worse than I do. And yet God still loves him. And you know what? You read that story, Abraham screws up. He has sex with his wife's slave because he doesn't want to wait for God to act. He thinks he can force God to act. And what does it do? It destroys the lives of Hagar and that child, Ishmael. And Sarah was not happy with the fact that Hagar had a baby oh you know that's so true 
Do you know anybody who's been unhappy that somebody else is having a baby? (laughs) Has that ever happened in your life? Happened, right? Right? Yeah, it's so true. And 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 boy, we we mess up all the time, and yet God still is there and still loves us. And we come to realize we come, we will persevere if we persevere. We will come to realize that God is always with us. I, I love the story of Jacob, who is a lying thief who steals the birthright, lies to his dad, goes to a very complicated lie to steal the birthright of his older brother, and then eventually realizes that he needs to reconcile, has this change of heart, and he wants to go apologize to Esau, but he's terrified Esau is going to kill him. And on the way to reconcile with Esau, he has this beautiful dream in which he sees God. No, no, no. That's when he he goes to, on his way to see Esau, that's when he fights with God and walks away with a limp and is renamed. You are no longer Jacob, the trickster. You are now Israel, the one who struggles with God. Man, I struggle with God. (laughs) I certainly know Braden and Liz and John, you guys struggle with God. Mm -hmm. There are days when I say, you know what, God, I'm done with this mess. I don't want to persevere. There's so many stories in the Bible, like, and as I'm hearing you tell these things, it's like the names in the Bible mean a lot. I, that's one thing that I've, like, the, the name of God in the Bible is like, in English translations, it's, it's always capitalized, capital L, O, cap, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. In Hebrew Bibles, it's certain symbols, and and the one of my favorite ways of expressing that is that really when you get right down to it like the even in the hebrew letters like the it's not really a word it's more like a a sound kind of it's more like the sound of breathing when you breathe you say the name of god is kind of the and so don't don't let your breath take the Lord's name in vain. Like all of these different things all come out of that imagery, out of that, like, but knowing that a name matters, going from Jacob, the trickster, to Israel, the one who's wrestled with God. Oh, man, alive. Going from Saul to Paul. Mm-hmm. Going from who Simon. I was last year. To who I am today. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, to be named by God. That's one of the more beautiful aspects of the three of three of the gospels. I don't think John has a scene where Jesus names his disciples. But in the other gospels, Jesus takes the disciples away and gives them a name. Oh, to be given a name, to be named by God. You are the sons of thunder. You are silent. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. We all want to know that God has named us. And we, we get these stories that assure us that it's true. That our parent has named us and loves us. Calls us the name that God gives us. Beloved child. My adopted beloved child. My creation. Adopted would be coming from the, the Apostle Paul. But... I think Jesus would say, you, you are beloved. You are just a beloved child. The beauty of the Bible is what my goal in life, I think my pastoral mission statement is to help people find beauty in the artistry of the Bible, to see the beauty that is there, which is why I try to create stories that draw people into the scripture lesson so that they can see there's so much more there than than what's just on the surface so I, I, people will hear this in the podcast i put out this in the podcast in the, the devotional i put out this morning but we've all talked to john you talked about 
learning something every day. Every time you go to the Bible, every time you study, you're learning something. It's like God's opening up our minds and our hearts. Liz, you're talking about learning through the process of teaching. Uh, every teacher learns more than their student does. Every good teacher learns more than their student does because they prepare. And I learned something new as I meditated on Jesus going into Jerusalem in Mark's gospel. I never realized that after Jesus gets on the donkey, he doesn't say a word. He has this incredibly acted out. He, he puts on a play. He does a drama. He teaches a parable without ever saying a word. And he uses what the people know and recognize. The people know the prophecy of Zechariah. So when they see Jesus, who they want to be their king, get on a donkey, they go wild. Jesus doesn't even have to say a word. And the people know because they've been formed by scripture. Now, here's the artistry part. Mark is an incredible, or whoever wrote the gospel of Mark, um, could have been a guy named Mark, we don't know. But the guy is one of the world's great artists. And he uses literary techniques that he develops literary techniques. I don't think anybody before Mark had used the, the technique of irony the way he does. His gospel is filled with irony. Irony drives the story. So think about this. Imagine you're with crowds of people cheering their king. This is the king who's going to save us. And they're chanting the halal, uh, the, the halal prayers are the prayers that people chanted uh, the Psalms 113 through 118, they're the, the Psalms that the crowds, the pilgrims would chant on their way up to the, the, the temple on the three high holy days. There's three days in which all men were supposed to go pilgrimage to Jerusalem to the temple. Three festivals. And one of those is Psalm 118. Save us, we pray. Save us, we pray. Which is the Hebrew word Hosanna. Save us, we pray. And we Americans, American Christians, we hear that word Hosanna and we, we, we call it hallelujah. We think the people are cheering, saying hallelujah, hallelujah. Well, hallelujah comes from the halal. The halal of hallelujah is praise prayers, but Hosanna is not hallelujah. Hosanna is save us, we pray. So there's all of these people chanting for the king to save us, save us, save us, save us. Who knows how many people are there? This is the entire crowd that came with Jesus up from Jericho. And then Jesus walks into the city, goes through the gate, walks into the temple, turns around and leaves, never says a word. And only the 12 follow him. What happened to the crowds? All of these people expecting Jesus to be king. He walks in and the volume's totally turned off. What does that irony say? What is God trying to say through us, to us, through that story? And then Jesus turns and leaves. And you can just, it's like the crowd totally deflates. Jesus walks into the temple, turns around and leaves. And they're totally deflated. Oh, what happened? He's supposed to be the arrow in God's quiver. He's supposed to be the arrow in God's bow. He's supposed to blow up the Romans. And he just walked away. And you know what happened? None of them followed him. It was just Jesus and the 12 who walked back to Bethany. Oh, what a work of art. What an incredible work of art that plays on human emotions and our desires. And if Jesus isn't going to be the Jesus I want him to be, I'm not going to follow him. May, so, may, may I offer a little background? Yes. I'm thinking that you probably are aware of this, Eric, 
Braden and Liz, I would be surprised if you would know this. It's very interesting they were singing uh, Hosanna, save us, because the assumption was they would have a King Messiah who would rescue Israel from the oppression, if you will. The prophecy from the Second Temple period was that if Israel had lost its connection with God, Messiah would come riding on a donkey. So if Israel had maintained its faithfulness with God, Messiah would come riding on a horse, a stallion. And the second temple prophecy is a little bit deeper in that it would be Messiah, son of Joseph, who, uh, and in the Talmud, there are two messiahs. And this dates back to the second temple period uh, prior to the coming of Christ. And so Messiah, son of Joseph, would be, if he were first, obviously an indication of, let's say, the spiritual state of Israel at the time. And then the expectation and hope was for Messiah, son of David, who will be coming. So what we Christians call the second coming is a part of this entire second temple tradition that is there. And it speaks very, very loudly about the condition of what was going on in Israel. The Maccabean priests had assumed the kingship, which is how an Edomite could possibly ever become the king of Judea, uh, as Herod was. He was an Edomite, and because that's specifically forbidden, but he married into the Maccabean lineage, and it's specifically forbidden to have the priests function as kings. So there's a whole lot of other things going on in the background here. So when those people walked away, it's like, I mean, there for me, I'd be going bummer because he's riding on a donkey. They would know the prophecy. They would have perhaps ignored the fact that the original prophecy was if, it's, if he's riding on a donkey, it's because Israel has turned away. And of course, then Israel is still expecting, at least among some sects, Messiah, son of David, to come. And of course, Christians are expecting um, what we call the second coming. And how is it described in Revelation, riding on a stallion? So there is a little bit of background there. Thank you for that, John. Consequently, Mark's story becomes really pregnant with meaning. So we have, we have just scratched to the surface and we'll be doing many episodes on what is the Bible and what it means to us and how we can, I hope, inspire people to fall in love with the Bible. So I'm looking forward to continuing the conversations and hope that those of you who are listening today will follow us, click the follow button so you can keep up with us, be notified when our next podcasts release. We will be exploring the numerical meanings in the Bible. Just to give you a little taste, John is also a mathematician. Amongst the languages he speaks, he speaks math, reads math, <laughs> and there are geometry concepts baked into the numbers of the Bible that will blow your mind. The number pi is everywhere. And the, the way to build temples, the design, the, the formulas for constructing buildings uh, baked into the numbers of the Bible. There's so much that John can teach us about what the Bible is in, in, that's far more than what you ever would have imagined, that's all coming. And we are going to explore the Bible through the lens of postmodernism, uh, post which is where we are today, what that means, 
We'll even be diving into song lyrics like the sympathy for the sympathy for the devil. <laughs> so we can see how interpretation and the way we live out our faith has affected the world. And oh, so much more. So until we meet again, love you guys. Love you. And we look forward to uh, many more of these conversations with you. So goodbye. Hey, thanks again for listening to A Questioning Faith. Uh, next week, we're going to be talking about uh, the Bible as art. And we're excited to talk about all the different art forms that we see in the Bible and the ways that that shapes us. Uh, have a great week, everyone. <laughs>